0: Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the Braille Institute's monthly telephone lecture series. And my name is Dr. Bill Takeda. And tonight we're going to be talking about optic nerve hypoplasia. And to educate us about optic nerve hypoplasia, we have Dr. Mark Borchert here. Dr. Borchert is a pediatric neuroophthalmologist at Children's Hospital Los Angeles, and he also has a private practice. Dr. Borchert, Borchert received his medical degree from Baylor University before doing his residency at the USC Doheny Eye Institute and later a fellowship in pediatric neuro-ophthalmology at Harvard. Dr. Borchardt is a professor at the Keck School of Medicine at the University of Southern California and he is also the director at pediatric ophthalmology at Children's Hospital Los Angeles. So uh, welcome to the show, and thank you so much, Dr. Borchert. We really appreciate it.
1: It's my pleasure.
0: (laughs) Well, I want to ask you something about the the increased number of children that we're seeing. At our center, we're just seeing a growing number of children with optic nerve hypoplasia and septo-optic dysplasia, and I was wondering if you could first explain to our audience what are these conditions and what's the difference between the two?
1: well it's my belief that there is no difference that this is a spectrum of the uh, same uh, disease and and the and the term septoptic dysplasia is a historical uh, term that was based on um, uh, really a misunderstanding of the uh, importance of uh, certain uh, brain findings uh, that were uh, that have been seen in uh, Um, And it's based on the fact that um, certain children are missing the septum pellucidum, which is basically a um, band of tissue in the middle of the brain that separates the two ventricles in the brain. And it is a band of tissue that really has no function. And initially, when people started to recognize the increased uh, prevalence of this disease in the community, there was... um, Uh, they were surprised to see that there were children who had um, hormone problems, and the first thing that was really noticed was a growth hormone deficiency. And coincidentally, in some of those children, they also were missing their septum pellucidum, along with the optic nerve hypoplasia. And so it was mistakenly felt that the... um, uh, septum pellucidum was a marker for the hormone problems and that, in fact, you therefore had higher risk for um, conditions other than just vision loss uh, if you were missing the septum pellucidum. And this uh, notion uh, was perpetrated that uh, the septum pellucidum was, had, had some sort of uh, importance. We since know from many, many studies that have been done that the septum pellucidum has no function and does not confer any greater risk for any of the other problems, hormone problems or otherwise. And so, in my opinion, the term septo-optic dysplasia really just serves to confuse the condition or confuse our understanding of the condition. Um, the reality is that the hallmark of this condition is a small optic nerve or optic nerve hypoplasia in one or both eyes. And having that problem alone confers risk for a myriad of other problems, including hormone problems, regardless of whether or not you are missing your septum pellucidum. And so to me it's all um, really uh, one condition with a huge spectrum of severity. Some kids who only have vision problems and some of them are lucky enough to only have it in one eye. And other kids who, along with their vision problems, have developmental problems, learning problems, hormone problems, growth problems, sleep problems, behavioral problems, temperature regulation problems, feeding problems, thirst problems, etc. All of these things are well-known uh, associations of this condition. And uh, the risk for any of these things has nothing to do with the presence or absence of the septum pellucidum, which has been traditionally used to make the diagnosis of septo-optic dysplasia.
0: So functionally, there would be really no functional difference between the child who has a diagnosis of septo-optic dysplasia and optic nerve hypoplasia, functionally speaking, with their vision.
1: With their vision or with anything else, that's true. Now, how do
0: you diagnose that? I I see that there are many times that children have been diagnosed with other conditions when it comes out that they actually have optic nerve hypoplasia. How is it that you are able to diagnose this condition in children?
1: That is a great question. A lot of people are under the mistaken uh, impression that it has to be diagnosed with an MRI scan or a CT scan, or uh, some other um, fancy technology. And the reality is that the best way to diagnose it is simply by looking into the eye with an instrument called an ophthalmoscope. And and quite honestly, the best instrument for making that diagnosis is a, a, a direct ophthalmoscope, which is an instrument that was invented in the 1800s by Helmholtz and is um, uh, really a quite an old instrument and but allows great magnification and great view of the optic nerve. And the optic nerve has a very characteristic appearance that distinguishes it from other conditions, that ha- uh, other optic nerve abnormalities. So um, it really, it, in the hands of a, an experienced um, eye doctor, the, this can be diagnosed with a very um, traditional um, and quite, actually, quite simple um, instrument. Uh, the trick is to have a physician who is comfortable looking in the eyes of babies, and to um, uh, um, have the patience uh, to and the experience to um, uh, to identify
0: it. Yeah, I think that's a key word is the experience. Uh, A lot of doctors don't see optic nerve hypoplasia very much. Now, with a lot of the studies that you've been doing for the past couple of decades, what can you tell us about what is the cause of optic nerve hypoplasia or what do we know is not the cause
1: of it? Well, that is a great question because, you know, whenever we start to see an increased uh, uh, incidence of a, of a disease that was previously unrecognized or rarely recognized. It causes a great deal of commotion in the medical literature, and um, people um, speculate uh, early on as to what may be causing this, and they, they uh, initially will look for the obvious things um, um whenever we see an increased incidence of a disease, we know that generally it indicates that it's not a hereditary condition because hereditary conditions pretty much uh, maintain equilibrium in the population so there's not a, there's not spikes uh, in the uh in the prevalence of the of the disease and so when we see this happening and in optic nerve hypoplasia is a great example of that, we start to look uh, for changes in the environment or something that is maybe going on in the in the uh, in the fetal exposure and then so the first thing that people tend to look at are uh, at the mother and what went on during the pregnancy and 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 invariably there are exposures that um, mo- mothers have that will stand out as being Unique. If you see enough mothers uh, who've been pregnant, you're always going to find a few who may have been exposed to um, certain drugs or certain toxins or other things. And um, it, it it is um, natural if you see one or two of these, and both and they both have many mothers of a uh, child with uh, optic nerve to assume that this may be a real association that is really a causative um, a factor. Um, And so there were reports early on uh, in uh, the literature of associations, for instance, of optic nerve hypoplasia with exposure to alcohol or exposure to recreational drugs or or that sort of thing. And unfortunately, this uh, became almost dogma in uh, in medical teaching. And... um, The only way to really uh, know uh, that these exposures are different than uh, the general population is to do large studies, uh, surveys of hundreds of uh, mothers who've had uh, uh, children with this condition and see if, in fact, the, the exposures of those mothers were really different than those of the other pregnant women in the population. And when you do that, all of these things that were purported to be associated or causative of this, such as alcohol exposure, tobacco exposure, um, anti-epileptic medication exposure, diabetes, and all sorts of things have dropped out as being a cause uh, for uh, optic neurophipoplasia. Um and if there, then, if you do a, a careful literature search, you find out that in fact, when you look at all the reports of exposures of mothers uh, uh, with of children with this condition, that um, the uh, that in fact it, um, there, it, there, it's a very small percent of the total who are actually. Our studies have, uh, have uh, elucidated the fact that uh, that the things that are reported in literature are generally do not hold up to be risk factors for the condition, and um, that, um, uh, in fact, the things that do stand up are the following things. Uh, uh, the firstborn children are at higher risk, so if the first pregnancy is really a higher risk risk, um, Young maternal age is a higher risk. Um, uh, weight loss during pregnancy is a higher risk. But none of these things are clearly causative of the condition. They just somehow are represent something else that is going on that puts uh, these mothers at risk.
0: Well, that's really good information because so many times when mothers come into the office with their babies with optic nerve hypoplasia, they have this immense feeling of guilt that, that they have done something wrong. But at this point, there is nothing that shows that there is anything that a mother has done wrong that would cause optic nerve hypoplasia.
1: Is that right? That is, that is correct. Um, and it's natural for mothers to feel guilt um, for their child's uh, uh, birth condition. Um, it is natural for them to search in their mind for what they may have done or may have been exposed to um, that um, uh, could have caused it, but in fact, very likely, it is nothing they could have prevented, um, and it is nothing that they did wrong. Much more likely, it is something in the environment that is totally beyond their control, and they need to recognize that. Now, would you
0: explain to the audience and all of us, why is it physiologically or anatomically that we see some children who have optic nerve hypoplasia and their visual acuity might be as good as 20, 30, and perhaps even driving a car, and then we have other children who have no light perception at all. Can you describe to our listeners why that is? That's a really
1: good question as well. The, um, in fact... Optic nerve hypoplasia just means a small optic nerve, and a small optic mer- nerve means you have fewer than the normal number of fibers in the optic nerve. Now, we are, in, in point of fact, the, the optic nerve develops in, in over the first um, 16 weeks, of, from about the seventh week of pregnancy to about the 16th week of pregnancy is when the optic nerve develops. and. By the 16th week of pregnancy, our eye has sent out fibers to connect to the brain, uh, totaling about uh, 3.5 million fibers. So the optic nerve is filled with about 3.5 million fibers by the 16th week of pregnancy. Many of those fibers don't make the right connections in the brain, and so they are basically kicked out. And so only the ones that are actually making the right connections in the brain remain. And you... So between the 16th month of pregnancy and um, and birth, we lose 70% of our fibers, down to about 1.2 million fibers. And so a normal optic nerve of a baby will have about 1.2 million fibers. Now, in the case of optic nerve hypoplasia, what we believe has happened is that for some reason, the child has lost an excessive number of fibers, more than 70% of their fibers. They, have made, they may be born with only 500,000 fibers or even zero fibers. And a child with so few fibers would be ex- expected to have very poor vision. However, you can have optic nerve hypoplasia if you're born with only... Say eight hundred thousand fibers, and that still represents, you know, about two thirds of the normal contingent of fibers that a baby should have. And so, therefore, you would expect to have pretty good vision in that child. We know from, for instance, uh, diseases such as glaucoma, that you can lose half of the fibers in your optic nerve and still have normal vision. It's after that that you that it starts to drop, and How what the your vision is really depends on how much you've got. So if you have fifty percent of the fibers, you may still have pretty normal vision. You get down to thirty percent of the fibers, you're going to start the vision is going to start to drop. You get down to five percent, you're going to have very poor uh, vision. And so it really depends upon the contingent of fibers you've got left, and also what part of the vision of the visual field, what part of your vision those fibers represent. So if the fibers that are left happen to be coming from the central part of vision, the part of the retina that we use for seeing detail, you're going to be left with pretty good vision. You won't have any peripheral vision, but you'll be be able to see pretty good detail. So both the number of fibers and the location that those fibers come from in the eye are important. The, the, The point here is that if you have optic nerve hypoplasia to any degree, whether you only have 1% of your fibers left or you have 50% of your fibers left, you're still at risk for all of the other problems that are associated with optic nerve hypoplasia. If you have 50% of your fibers, you will have very likely good vision, but you are still at risk for all of the other problems. Uh, And so the optic nerve hypoplasia itself is a marker for the condition overall but the severity of the optic nerve in large part determines the vision.
0: Now, when we talk about the, the loss of so many of these fibers, is there any, any research that is conclusively showing that stem cells may be a treatment possibility in the future of regenerating some of these fibers that have been dropped off?
1: So that's obviously a really a source of, uh, of great enthusiasm right now in medicine, is the ability to take uh, stem cells and get them to regenerate lots of body parts. And um, uh, the answer is that's probably um, uh, holds the best promise for um, for at least restoring sight in the future. And point up, but, but people have um, a misunderstanding of what stem cells are. There are lots of different kinds of stem cells, and you can't just use any stem cell to do this. And so the notion that you have to get stem cells, from, for instance, from a fetus, or you have to get it from cord blood or something like that is really erroneous. We all have stem cells in our body as adults, and in our retina, we have stem cells that have the potential to become optic nerve cells and regenerate an entire optic nerve. They exist currently in the retinas of all of us with healthy retinas, and they presumably exist in the retinas of children with optic nerve hypoplasia. And, in fact, many animals, particularly um Uh, lower vertebrates, uh, non-mammalian vertebrates, such as salamanders, for example, can totally regenerate their optic nerve. Not only can they totally regenerate their optic nerve, they can totally regenerate their eyeball if you remove it. And it's those stem cells that are there that turn on when the optic nerve is injured and regrow the optic nerve. We have those same stem cells and we have the same genes that a salamander has that that theoretically has the potential to turn on, to reproduce the optic nerve. The trick is figuring out how to control those stem cells. The trick is figuring out how to turn on those genes that allow the stem cells to turn into optic nerve cells and not into cancer cells or something else. And um, so um, that's really where the uh, research is being directed by serious scientists uh, uh, who are invested in this process. Um, the, many people, unfortunately, have this notion that you could just take any stem cell and put it into somebody, and, it's gonna, and if you're missing a body part, it's going to regenerate that body part, and that, is, and that couldn't be farther from the truth. It is a it has great potential. I am extremely optimistic for it. The 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 one problem I have is I what I I am very concerned about people thinking about optic nerve hypoplasia as primarily a vision problem because it is a it is those of our listeners who have kids with optic nerve hypoplasia. I'm sure many of them have recognized with, in the older children that the, in many cases the vision is the least of their problems and although there are a minority who only have vision problems, to think that the stem cell treatment that eventually will come around to treat the vision problem is going to take care of the other problems is um, false hope. And I I want to make sure that people understand that. Now, when
0: we talk about uh, the optic nerve, it's 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 known that the optic nerve after birth it does not grow or regenerate any of these fibers but why is it that we see a lot of children that their vision
1: their functional
0: vision improves with time can
1: you explain that to a lot of the parents out there Yeah that's a great question and I'm glad that people recognize this you know for a long time uh uh in, in Physicians re- refuse to accept that this could happen. And, in fact, to this day I still hear from parents who tell me that the, one of the doctors they saw told them their child was going to be permanently blind when the child is still really an infant. And, in fact, it, it, that simply may not be true. In fact, the majority of kids have some improvement in their vision, and some have a lot of improvement in their vision. So the um, the question is, why, how could that happen when... The uh, opt- we know that the optic nerve isn't regenerating, you're not getting new fibers. Um, the, um, and we think the, there are a couple of possibilities. The, the bottom line is we don't really know why it happened, but there are a couple of reasonable possibilities. The first is that when you're born, although you have your full contingent of fibers in the optic nerve at the time of birth, those fibers are still very immature. And they do not, their speed of transmission is very slow. It's very much akin to an old copper wire uh, telephone line compared to a high-speed fiber optic telephone line. The nerves, the fibers you're born with are much like the old copper wires, and the ones you have by the time you're older are more like a fiber optic. And the reason is that... Um, over time, you lay down a coating on each of the fibers, which is very much like the plastic coating we put on a copper wire, and that uh, is called myelin, and that is laid down over the first three to four years of life. And w- when that happens, the speed of transmission of electrical impulses along the optic nerve vastly increased. And we think that, you know, it's, very much analogous from going from uh, you know a, a, an old uh, low bandwidth telephone line for your internet to a DSL or, or other high speed line that all of a sudden you get much better you can go from an old-fashioned TV to a high definition TV and um, and so the, there's Im, uh, there's a lot of uh, improvement in the vision over that period of time and that improvement. It doesn't take a whole lot of improvement in somebody who has uh, a lot of vision problems to make a big difference in their function. And so that is the, probably the leading, uh, most plausible theory for what's happening. There are other possibilities. The most likely other possibility, and this may play a part in it as well, is that basically the brain is you know, still very immature when you're young, and uh, that um, the, as the time goes on, it kind of rewires itself at, at, so that it becomes uh, a much more efficient processor of the information. And so it, it can develop the ability by learning um, what things look like to basically um, improve the quality of the images that are coming in, very much like these um, software programs that, um, improve the resolution of photographs that are innately uh, uh, low resolution but can, can basically, by reassembling the pixels and looking for nearest neighbor uh, uh, be, uh, characteristics can actually uh, enhance uh, the quality of the photographs. You see this all the time on Spy shows and, and CSI shows and stuff. How they can enhance the license plate and that sort of thing. And it, we we think that the brain can uh, do uh, much of the uh, the same kind of thing just after enough experience.
0: Now, Doctor Borchard, what are
1: <clears throat> excuse me?
0: What are some of the things that parents and teachers and doctors should look for that might be an indication that the child with optic nerve hypoplasia? has
1: either a hormone problem or one of these other
0: types of problems? Uh,
1: well, um, if you don't look for it, you may not know it. That's one of the uh, problems with the, our older understanding of the disease and mm-hmm. led to the notion that there were two separate forms of the disease, optic nerve and septo-optic dysplasia, because people actually weren't testing the kids who had a normal septum pellucidum, and it turned out they still had problems. So the, um, you have to test them. Every child uh, with optic nerve hypoplasia has to be have a complete uh, assessment for hormones. Um, and we know that a, a small minority of these kids, even if they're totally normal, say, in the first year or two of life, could still develop problems later on in life. Um, and so they need to be tested periodically thereafter and currently are Our recommendation is to adjust at least until the age of four years. Now, if you develop hormone problems beyond the age of two to three, it's less devastating for you. In other words, it's much less likely to have impacts on your overall development. You can treat it later and still take care of the problem. But if you miss, for instance, a thyroid hormone deficiency in a baby, um, that is going to cause permanent brain injury. You miss a cortisol deficiency in a baby, um, you could subject the child to serious health problems in fighting infection or in dealing with stress, and they could even die from it. And so these things have to be tested in all babies. As the older they get, the less um, impact these hormone problems are going to have. They still have an impact and they still need to be treated, but it's less urgent. Um Um, And so uh, our current recommendation is that as soon as a child is diagnosed, they have a complete battery of uh, hormone tests done, and I can certainly provide a list of those things that need to be done. But um, then uh, if they're all fine, then thereafter they have their cortisol and thyroid hormone, at the very least, uh, checked once a year until they're about four. The other problems um, are... uh, much more insidious, um, and that is uh, learning problems, behavior problems, uh, uh, these sorts of things, they kind of evolve and are are much more difficult to diagnose early and become very apparent when they're there, and the trick is um, to get um, early intervention services with depending on what the the particular problem is as soon as possible but you can't really anticipate these things very well. Now when a child is over five years of age
0: how frequently do you recommend that they are seen by a neuro ophthalmologist such as yourself if nothing medically can be done?
1: Uh, Nothing really I mean it's not really it's not essential Uh, There's not much else that can be done, and it's not likely that problems are going to develop that a neuro-ophthalmologist is going to be able to take care of uh, uh, beyond five years of age. Certainly, you develop other problems beyond five years of age, and there are potential problems of going through puberty and uh, potential uh, uh, socialization and behavior problems that can develop. But uh, this is not really in the... A realm of care of an ophthalmologist or an optometrist, it's really these are more um, in the area of care of adolescent medicine or, uh, be, or um, uh, behavioralists or in the realm of uh, endocrinologists. So it, it, but the ophthalmologist or, or optometrist needs to follow these kids for their vision mostly because the children can still develop other things that will impact the vision. So, for instance, children with optic nerve hypoplasia are very likely to develop myopia, nearsightedness, or astigmatism, both of which can be aided with the simple use of glasses. Um, it, 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 so in a, childhood, a a vision impairment, it's really important to... Take care of the little things. Take care of every little thing that can make the vision better, even though it's not the major problem. Missing, missing nearsightedness it could be treated in a 7-year-old in a with optic nerve uh, who has marginal vision would be really uh, a tragedy. And so that is the main thing that eye doctors, can, the main role eye doctors can play beyond the age of 5 years.
0: Yeah, that's really really great advice, and I know we often see sometimes uh, there's a lot of doctors who will say that, well, the major damage is to the optic nerve and glasses won't help, and that that's not true. That's right. But, uh, doctor, do you have a a few minutes to answer some questions from our listeners? I would be delighted. Okay, great. So if all of you who have questions, if you would unmute your phone by pressing star 6, we got a few minutes to ask Dr. Borchardt some questions. And, again, remember, this is being recorded, so if you don't want your identity to be known, uh, don't don't reveal your name. Uh, so do we have a question for Dr. Borchardt?
2: Hello? Yes, go Hello. ahead. Hi, I have a question. Um, this is Dallas, Brayden's mom. We actually just saw you a couple weeks ago. Um, one thing I wanted to ask is a lot of parents want to know the difference behavioral-wise between... O&H and autism. I know that autism is often diagnosed with o and sometimes it should and sometimes it shouldn't be. So where's the difference between the two?
1: Boy, Dallas, that's a very um, great question. and it, This is really a um, uh, source of a lot of research uh, going on right now. We just just um, Week, uh, last week uh, published an article uh, in the Journal of Visual Impairment and Blindness uh, that was uh, basically talking about the problem of diagnosing autism in kids with vision impairment and why this is so critical in the case uh, of optic nerve because we know that uh, a significant percentage of these children are at risk for developing uh, autism spectrum disorder. I consider ONH to be an aut- uh, not to be a spectrum disorder in and of itself. But it, um, but to to absolutely say whether a child with ONH has autism or not is really difficult unless it's evaluated by somebody who not only has experience a lot of experience at uh, uh, testing for autism in children who are sighted, but also has a lot of experience in dealing with children who have vision impairment. and children with a vision impairment have certain behaviors that those um, so that in, that autism experts who don't deal with children with visual impairment would recognize as autistic when they're really not autistic. Uh, and yeah. uh, on the other hand, other children with vision impairment they get their behaviors are Written off as being just due to their vision impairment, when in fact they are autistic, and so they don't get the services they need uh, to deal with their autism. And this is the big dilemma we're dealing with right now. Mm-hmm. What we need really is um, instruments for diagnosing autism that have been validated in children with vision impairment, so that they are independent of vision and. We are working on trying to develop those so that they can be more broadly available to all families of kids with vision impairment, not just those with O&H, although clearly the families of kids with O&H would stand to benefit even more because they're at higher risk. But children with vision impairment overall are still at higher risk for autism than the general population. So um, this is something that's sorely needed. Um, We don't have uh, a good answer right now, but for, but for individuals who are concerned that the child with O.N.H. may have autism, they really need to get the, um, the evaluation by a professional who has experience not just with autism, but also with kids with vision.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And Dr. Borcher, do you have
0: recommendations of people who do have that type of expertise <laughs> or is that mostly, uh, you know, at Children's Hospital right now? Is is there a study that's being done, or are right. there?
1: All right. So there's a study that we are doing uh, currently um, uh, to refine um, uh, the two major um, autism testing instruments that are used by uh, uh, psychologists. Um, and we're trying to refine it. We're, it's in pilot studies right now. And then once it's, we've finished the pilot studies to refine it, we're going to roll it out as a bigger study looking at many, many kids who are visually impaired from all causes to see if we're able to actually uh, sort out um, the ones with uh, autism from those who do not have autism. So this is uh, well, several exciting. years in the making.
0: Yeah, Mm -hmm. that's real exciting. Another question for Dr. Borchardt?
2: Yes, please. Um, I'm Octavia from Jackson, Mississippi, Mm -hmm. and thank you for all of your good work. I'm very intrigued. I have a five-year-old daughter with ONH, and I was just wondering if there are any classroom strategies that have been proven to be more effective than others for kids with this eye condition.
1: What do you mean by classroom strategies? Strategies to achieve what?
2: Um, the highest level of whatever they can potentially, you know, reach. Um, we we have gone to behaviors. We've already met the mark on that. She just hit five. So it was very interesting to, to, to hear you say certain things can't be determined until they get older. Well, we reached that mark, <laughs> and uh, it's been wonderful. I'm still learning, but we came to the issue of uh, she was at a private school where she was the only visually impaired child. And the thing that they kept wanting to pick up on was the autism traits, which I kept saying, yeah, it's not autism. I couldn't get them to understand her and what this encompassed.
1: All right. So this is a big problem. Um, so often we have children who are really put in uh, in the inappropriate uh, school environment, um, either yeah. with, for instance, with kids. Uh, for instance, we have kids with O&H who um, have maybe only mild vision impairment, but have,
2: right.
1: um, for instance, speech delay or motor delay, and they get then put into a classroom of kids who are severely mentally retarded. Mm-hmm. That is not an environment that is going to foster learning in a child who has right. disabilities that are affecting their learning, but that when they don't really have mental retardation. And this, right. is, a, this is a common. Problem we see, and so I think every uh, case is unique. It's not like I can generalize Mm -hmm. about uh, what uh, what the school environment needs to do for kids with ONH. I would say that it is important that the school uh, has experience with kids with ONH as well as kids with visual impairment in general, and that (laughs) they have that experience and that they have the ability by through that experience to recognize those behaviors that are really behaviors of visually impaired as opposed to those behaviors that are really what one would consider autism spectrum behaviors. Right. So mm-hmm. that is, uh, I, I don't, I can't really give um, specific recommendations to any uh, program.
2: Well, she's going to go to school for the blind, so that will clear up a lot of it in the fall. <laughs> But I was just wondering, in the event that we decided to at some point go back to, uh, you know, non-traditional school for the blind, what we were up against.
0: Well, you know, if I may interject, the most important thing that you have to do for her is that you have to really have her have a functional vision assessment. Oh,
2: yeah.
0: We really need to see all aspects of her vision. How far can she see? What can she see up close? What colors does she see? What's her contrast vision? What's her peripheral vision? And also now that she is five, we could also run perceptual testing to get an idea how does her brain process that. In addition to those visual testing, the school psychologist can also evaluate different aspects of her attention, her brain processing. So uh, as Dr. Borchardt said, each case is unique, and you want to get that profile of all of these. And if you're asking for strategies to assist with the classroom – you can go to our website uh, for the Center for the Parsi Sighted at okay. wwwlow L-O-W, minus mm-hmm. sign, vision.org, low-vision.org. And we have Thank a library you. section there that has specific accommodations to help teachers to know how okay. to help children with low vision. And uh, this, this might be very helpful if your daughter goes to a private school where they don't have teachers for the visually impaired.
1: Right. Another question for Dr.
0: Borchardt?
1: i got a question from Toronto here, if you don't mind. Okay. Go ahead. Yeah, Toronto. Thank you. uh, My wife introduced herself, uh, Jen. Our son is Ryan. Uh, He's eight months old now. Uh, The question that we have is you originally talked about uh, ONH and SOD not being hereditary uh, of concern. However, when we met with our endocrinologist initially, uh, they saw great concern in the fact that my wife is of Irish descent, but played no concern whatsoever that I was of Danish descent. Is there some sort of guideline as to uh, more frequency within families that are of Irish descent? No. I, I hate to be so terse, but there's really no evidence that uh, the, um, the 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 your descendancy in terms of uh, uh, your, your the nationality from which you, you immigrated has anything to do with it. We do know a few things. Uh, we know, for instance, that um, there is a, um, uh, a slight uh, predilection for whites over, um, uh, over other ethnicities. There's also a, a slight predilection for um, Hispanics Whereas we also know that Asians are relatively protected, they still get it of course we're not sure if this is because of the ethnicity uh, itself or if it has more something to do with the uh, cultural environment um, of these ethnicities, whether it's uh, diet or the locations they live in or 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 something else but um, uh, but in terms to, of identifying a nationality that is more predisposed, there is no evidence that that is true. Great. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Great. N- another
0: question, please. Yes.
2: Uh, my name is Carol, and uh, I'm talking about my grandson. He's three years old now. When he was eight months old, he had surgery. He had hydrocephalus, and then he had surgery for a benign papilloma of the plexus. So his ophthalmologist, ophthalmologist, ophthalmologist using the ophthalmoscope said that he noticed that he had, uh, the, the, you know, the uh, optic nerve hypoplasia. So I'm wondering, listening to the lecture, is that a mis- misdiagnosis or what? Can you get it from uh, a tumor or hydrocephalus?
1: That's a good question. No, but we know that children with optic nerve hypoplasia are more prone to have hydrocephalus more prone to have arachnoid cysts. I'm not aware of uh, choroid plexus papillomas being um, uh, more likely associated with this, but but choroid plexus papillomas are pretty common tumors in general, and so it just may be a coincidental um, finding. But my guess is that the, your grandson had uh, the... Um, the uh, optic nerve hypoplasia from the get-go, but it was missed in light of all the other problems that were going on, uh, especially the hydrocephalus, which is commonly associated and is a very severe condition in and of itself. Uh, You need to know that hydrocephalus does cause vision impairment even without optic nerve hypoplasia, and it can cause uh, vision impairment either by damaging the optic nerve or damaging the vision centers of the brain, and so we are not surprised to see kids with hydrocephalus with vision problems. And so people don't really pay much attention until the child's a little bit older, and they're wondering why his vision isn't getting better. And then they finally look in the eyes, and they say, "Oh my goodness, we've missed optic nerve hypoplasia all along." Now,
2: does Patrick do any really good for that? I'm sorry. Uh,
1: patching patching the eye? Patching the eye... Um, if you have that diagnosis? Is not... Um, yeah, so patching the eye does not fix the optic nerve hypoplasia. Patching the eye is useful if you have a condition called amblyopia, which can be superimposed on the optic nerve hypoplasia. Amblyopia is caused by ignoring one eye in preference to the other because the brain is getting two different images from the eye. And so that may be because you need glasses in one eye and not in the other, or it may be because your eyes are crossed or turned out, and so your eyes are looking in different directions, and the brain doesn't know how to handle that information, and so it starts to basically disconnect from one eye, and that causes vision loss. And in that condition situation, you can patch the good eye and force the Brain to use the bad eye and improve the vision. However, and we know in kids with optic nerve hypoplasia that you can improve the vision of the worse eye a little bit by patching, um, uh, because there usually is something else going on that is causing superimposed amblyopia. Mm-hmm. The problem with this is that if there's a big difference between in the vision between the two eyes, because the Optic nerve hypoplasia is asymmetric. Then, um, then the major cause for the vision loss is not amblyopia. It's the difference in the severity of the optic nerve hypoplasia. And so, if you pass the good eye, then you will never get the bad eye up to equal to the good eye, no matter what you do. Consequently, the brain is always going to have a different image between the two eyes. And and it, and you will have to do a lot of patching in order to get any improvement in the very in the eye with worse optic nerve and that is really punishing the child who has reasonable vision in his in the good eye. And um, we, we, at the age when we need the child to start be using their vision, if you're patching uh, one eye, you're really not helping them. The situations where I use patching is where I believe the vision, the optic nerve hypoplasia, is approximately equal in the two eyes, and I believe the two eyes have equal visual potential, but the child is only using one eye because of some other reason, such as needing glasses in one eye or needing or having crossed eyes. Mm -hmm. Then I will patch the good eye to get the vision up to equal to the good eye and the bad eye. But if I do not feel that the bad eye... Has a good enough optic nerve to ever be equal to the better eye um, then I do not patch
2: thank you very thank you.
0: Let's take one last question one last question for dr. Borchard
2: yeah can you tell me the statistics of onH as of now and when did it first be re- when was it first reported?
1: okay, so optic nerve um hypoplasia, we're not exactly sure of the first report. It's generally attributed to Dr. Magnus in 1884 in Germany as the first report, but the first real description of it with a picture showing what it looked like with this of course was a drawing, because before we had cameras that could take pictures of the eye, was was by a doctor named Schwartz in, I think it was 1912 or 1915. And, um, Between that report and 1970, there were between 30 and 35 cases ever reported in the world literature, and they were felt to be extreme anomalies, and nobody knew what caused it, but it was just considered a very rare birth defect. In the decade of the 1970s, there were 365 reports. Of uh, optic nerve hypoplasia. and that's when people started to say, "Oh, this is starting. I'm starting to see this now," and that's when the speculation started to arise about what may be causing it. Um, the there are there were many um, studies that have been done trying to estimate the the prevalence of the condition in children, um, and unfortunately, in the United States, we have very bad Data because they, we don't have a central reporting mechanism for causes of vision impairment. The uh, American Foundation for the Blind has tried to do this, and they're making great progress. But until recently, we really haven't had anything. The um, uh, the so the best reports come out of the countries where um, there is uh, socialized medicine and where all the people with a particular Condition have to go to the same institution hmm. and they're seen by the same doctors and so they know they're capturing every single child so for instance the Scandinavian countries England and Canada have provided a lot of information for us about the prevalence of this condition in um, uh, the the only population based study that was done uh, was in England in nineteen 19- uh, in two, uh, 19, uh, around 2000, um, maybe it was late 1990s, where in northern England they, looked, they did a population they study. They looked at all the kids in the population, and they found that the prevalence of the disease in England was one child out of 10,000. One out of 10,000 children mm-hmm. less than 15 years of age had this um, condition. In Scandinavia, they've been, in Sweden, they, all the children go to the same uh, institution, all the children who have vision problems of any kind uh, go to the same institution and are diagnosed there by the same doctors, and there been the same doctors there for several decades. When they first reported their prevalence of different eye diseases in children in um, the 70s, um, optic nerve hypoplasia was on the map, but it was lagged way behind other causes of vision uh, loss in children. Um, Between then and uh, uh, most recent report, which I think was in 2006, um, 2008, they um, uh, noted an increase in the um, prevalence of the condition, and their current estimates in Sweden are that it affects 1.5 um, uh, 1.5 to 2 uh, kids per 10,000 babies less than uh, three years of age. But, and, and that is um, a sevenfold increase in the number of cases um, in the, pop, you know, adjusted for the population. The, um, the other thing that's really interesting there is that it is the only cause of blindness in kids that it's increasing. All the other causes of blindness in kids are is decreasing, uh, are mm-hmm. decreasing in, in Sweden. In last year, in 2010, there was a, a, a publication by the uh, American Foundation for the Blind in their Babies Count Program where they're looking at all the kids in, that are visually impaired in this country, um, and they found that optic nerve hypoplasia was the leading cause um, in, in babies. In this country. And so um, the, the, they didn't try to do prevalence estimates, but um, that's uh, um, the best we can do. Now, we've had a study going on um, for five years now in, in out of our institution with an online survey of parents uh, uh, who have children with optic nerve hypoplasia, and I would encourage all of you who are on the line who um, not uh, uh, uh responded to the survey to please do it for us, but this survey um we're trying to identify every child in the country with opting our publication we're basically have um we're uh, we're identifying them by zip code actually we're now identifying them by census tract, but in the past we identify well, our the study we're publishing soon uh was it was by zip code. And we've identified every zip code in the country that has at least one child affected. Now, if we then adjust the number of cases uh, by the population in the zip code, so now we're not doing it for the entire country. We're only doing it for the zip codes that have any case. But if you adjust it by the by the population of all the zip codes affected, um, the population, uh, uh, prevalence of the disease, and this is for children only, this is the population of children, not the total population, just the population of children in the zip codes that have at least one child. The um, the, the prevalence in this country is about 2.2 per 10,000 uh, children. Mm-hmm. Um, now, there are some zip codes that are much more, are much high, more highly represented. That have even more than a hundred kids per ten thousand uh, children. Mm-hmm. Um, but the 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 average of, uh, prevalence in the population of affected zip codes is two point two per ten thousand. Mm-hmm. That's the best data we have. That's that's States. really remarkable, though, though. As high as a hundred per ten
0: thousand. Yes. Yeah. Really major. Well, this is just really, really fantastic information, Dr. Borcher. We really, really thank you. And do you have any uh, recommended books or articles that you have written, or how can people get in touch with you if they want an appointment or want to contact you for one of your articles or books?
1: The first thing I recommend that people to do is go, anybody who has not completed the survey, it, we really mm-hmm. need you to complete it if you add, if your pregnancy occurred in the United States, um, and uh, it's very simple to do it's anonymous um, and all you need to do is give your location where you lived prior to your pregnancy in the first three months of pregnancy and the second three months of pregnancy um, and then the information that you give gets converted to a census tract we don't look we get rid of your uh, address that you give us and we do all the research by census tract if you want us to then contact if you, you if you live in a zip code or a census tract that for which we need to do more research. Then you can leave mm-hmm. um, information about uh, uh, contact information for us. But you can complete that survey by just going to www.onhsurvey.org, and um, and that would and that'll open right up to it. And it would really help. For more information, there are many uh, uh, resources. We are just about to roll out a website that is dedicated to ONH. Uh, it's going to be a web portal that will uh, will uh, allow people to get access, to get information about the providers in their area, uh, both ophthalmologists, optometrists, and service providers for all the various problems that kids of ONH face. Um, it will also give um, uh, them uh, Facebook links, uh, if they want it to people who, uh, are, are, uh, who want to communicate with one another, it will also uh, give them uh, the most up-to-date research information and links to all the various medical papers um, that are out there. And so this will, uh, we're uh, just doing um, uh, the very first rollout of it next month, um, and it's sort of in uh, trial now, but it'll be generally out within a few months. Um, the, for the time being, there are a lot of good resources that I can point you to. Uh, uh, MagicFoundation.org is one. Um, they they have a subsection on SOD slash ONH. Um, um, one Small Voice Foundation is a is a good one. Um, there are other. Um, About real quickly,
0: can you give what the future uh, address will be of the portal? I don't portal?
1: have that's good. I don't have the URL yet for okay. it. Mm-hmm. Um. Uh. But um. We will uh, be disseminating it uh, widely um, as uh, soon as we have that. Okay. Yeah. Well, if you get
0: that to us, then we'll put it up on. Institute webpage and on Airs Lar podcast, so we want to thank you so much for your time and all of this great information. And we hope that we could have you back to share with us some of your uh, latest okay. findings.
1: Okay, thank you.
2: Well, I just want to thank everyone for joining us this year, this past year for the Doctor. Bill Telephone Education Series. We hope you were able to gather some great information. I'm sure you were. Um, we we look forward to seeing you next uh, next uh, year at our next during our next series and uh, listening to our next set of uh, podcasts. And we will be beginning again in September, so please look for our, our schedule on the, the Braille Institute website, and that will also be available at airesla.org. Um Thanks again for all your participation, and have a great summer.